thank you for taking the time. And aside from having to do media, good day for you so far? Yes, everything's been good. Yeah, just getting my day going, honestly. <laughs> yeah, uh, Pacific Coast time. So yeah, it's still coffee o'clock by you? It's coffee o'clock. <laughs> there you go. That's an impressive wall you have behind you because yeah. you recognize so a couple of different companies yet somebody painted you or is that is that a photo of you or a painting of you oh they're photos i have like a bunch of them like that go down the wall so. but i don't see any wear a loca stuff on the wall uh there's loca by ty valkyries there we got taya here we got awards up the wall we got all sorts of things <laughs> yeah the last few times i've had the pleasure of speaking with you one time you were promoting the movie unchained another time the fashion line and now I'm speaking to somebody who's a champion in this company and then wrestling in that company. It seems like it's there's never a dull moment that it hasn't slowed down for you in about six, seven years. Uh, it hasn't slowed down for me, yeah, most of 90% of my career. <laughs> but that's also how I, I am as a person is I'm extremely motivated and enjoy working. I don't like being bored. I mean, that's just it. And I like challenging myself and so, um, you know, with the way that the wrestling industry has been over the last few years since COVID and, and the doors being open to different companies and not having to be, uh, you know, signed to one place, uh, of course, I'm going to make the most of it. <laughs> yes. And we were connected by the NWA folks. What was your gateway or entryway into NWA? Was it knowing Mr. Corgan? Was it nobody knowing somebody backstage or did they just reach out because they know you're great? I had been like a few people had told me they had spoken to Billy about me. And then um, eventually I just got an email from Billy Corgan himself and we connected on the phone and uh, just started the conversation about me coming in and doing some work with them. And then I've, you know, ever since the uh, always ready pay-per-view uh, I've been, you know, a staple there for the last six months or so. And, you know, I'll continue to do that, um, you know, this week in Knoxville and then and beyond. So it's been really fun. It's totally different than other places I've worked, obviously, just the way it's filmed and the setup and things like yeah. that. But it's still really fun for me. And just being able to work with different people. There's so many women and men out there that I had never wrestled before. And so being able to explore these different platforms and different companies is definitely, you know, opened my eyes to more talent and just tested myself. When you came into NWA for that first appearance, did you know if there was going to be other appearances or if it was just a one-off? I didn't know at the time, um, but I was confident that I would be asked to continue but no like a lot of things kind of happen over you know a period of time and um as the NWA films like they don't film every week they film every you know four to six weeks so it's been really good for my schedule and also they they do film you know at Skyway Studios during the week and so there's weeks when there's some weeks when I'm I have like seven days of of wrestling in a row because I'm doing right. all the other stuff and then I have NWA during the week so it's been it's been good it's a good uh consistent and happy place for me so <laughs> yeah without pulling the curtain back too much i mean nwa fills films and clumps impact films and clumps mlw another company that films three four weeks of programming in one day so yeah. it must be that you have six or seven days in a row but then you have seven weeks where there's nothing by some chance uh that's definitely not the case <laughs> oh okay because <laughs> hey you're also in mexico too yeah like i Plus. mean between AAA, between Impact, NWA, MLW, and Indie Wrestling, I am 
very booked, which is, you know, booked and busy, as they say, which is amazing. And that's all you want. You want to have a consistent work schedule. It also helps me stay motivated and focused. And then, uh, you know, my weekends are 99.9% working, working, working. And during the week, I'll have time to do you know, the other hundred things that I decided that I wanted to do. Well, the career that you have now didn't really exist 10 years ago. By that, I mean, you had to work for the unnamed big company, maybe a handful of people on the Indies did okay. A couple of people in Japan from the, from North America, but for the most part, there wasn't that ability to work in multiple places and be your own boss in a way. When did you start to realize that that would be your life? Um, I don't know. My life has always been non-conventional <laughs> nothing ever has been easy. I've always feel like I'm fighting to like find my place, even though I have been in this business for 12 years, I still feel like I'm like trying to prove something because there are always going to be people that are naysayers and don't agree with something or whatever that is. And even when I was working for AAA at first, like everyone was like, what is that? Like it was not on, you know, PWI didn't include AAA at all in their rankings. And, and things like that. So it wasn't as popular. It wasn't. And Lucha Libre style was just really on the cusp of like getting another resurgence in the States with Lucha Underground and everything else. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know if I've ever really had a plan that this would be how I'm doing life, but I always knew that I was meant to be a wrestler. I knew that I was meant to be an entertainer. Mm-hmm. I knew that I was meant to, you know, break those boundaries, learn different styles and really carve my own spot. My spot didn't exist. I had to really make it myself. Right. And you were the champion in two companies right now, or is it three? I'm with three. I'm a world tag team champion with the Death Dolls and Impact Wrestling. I'm Lucha Libre AAA's Reina de Reina's champion on my fourth, t- fourth title reign, as well as the MLW Featherweight Women's Champion. Impressive. There's not many people <laughs> who can do that, but Something that impresses me even more is how you were able to keep the fact that you were filming for Glow quiet and nobody knew about it until it was canceled. I know. Which I I think holding out hope, I think we'll eventually see episodes or a reunion. So I don't think it's totally lost, but you've always been good at keeping secrets where nobody knows where you're going to magically appear. But Glow seems like another level where nobody knew that hundreds of crew people and actors were there for long periods of time. I think that like the fact that certain things stay quiet is proof that I have really good loyal friends. (laughs) Because I mean, I I remember when John was on Survivor, like we were able to keep that quiet forever and ever and I was like even when I went to WWE I was like oh my god like you're biting your nails at home like I hope no one finds out but yeah it was proof that I have some really kick-ass women and men in my life as my friends because we all have our you know our secrets uh because we're trying to just you know let people be excited when these things happen I think it's so much more fun even though you want to scream it from the rooftop like you just have to be like no it's good it'll it'll all be worth it for that moment so yeah when glow happened and like I hadn't even told impact at the time. Like I didn't tell like anybody because I just really didn't know how long I would be on the show because that also changed, uh, you know, and then COVID happened obviously, but I would love to be able to finish what we started, especially cause we did a lot of really good work um, in those episodes that, you know, are in some vault somewhere. Oh, yeah. 
a Netflix yeah. vault somewhere. Uh, so I'd really love if people can see it. Also, just for the fact that, like, as someone who is into the acting world and stuff now, it's such a good credit to have on my resume. And uh, sure. the fact that I can't show that off is is sad. <laughs> holding out hope but something that you just mentioned there kind of made me laugh a little bit the part about how john was able to keep it quiet about survivor that around the time of that our mutual friend ddp said oh you want to interview john here's his email and i wrote to john and i got back an auto reply that said something like i am in a remote place that doesn't have email <laughs> and i just thought okay what a weirdo this is a quirk. Yeah, he's weird. So it does, it fits, it fits the mold. But yeah, like during the time he was on Survivor, like I was in charge of all his social media because he couldn't obviously have a phone. Yeah. I, I think I spoke to him, to a producer one time once he was gone. Like nobody was telling me what was going on. It was like five, six weeks of this. It was crazy. Uh, and then I had like friends reach out to me who didn't know that John was on Survivor who were like, where's John? I'm like, oh, he's filming something. Like I've just make things up or like, are you sure people that didn't know, are you sure he doesn't have a phone on survivor guys? It's me <laughs> surprise. Like <laughs> I'm the one that's posting on his social. So we had like a system, we had a system going on and we were able to, you know, keep it quiet. I did, I did get a few, uh, messages from like dirt sheets that were, is John doing this? And I was just, just not, answer that's <laughs> why you're always working and everyone wants to work with you and take the compliment and uh <laughs> my, my last question you know tying in what we've spoken about is your passions outside of wrestling you've done plenty and there's your fashion line and there's the acting but is there another thing that we might see you eventually do when you're done with being on the road 250 days a year um, well, well, right now, like, uh, I'm sure everyone is, or I hope everyone knows that the Iron Sheik Massacre, a movie that John and I wrote and produced together, is in film festivals. It's already won over three awards internationally, you know, nationally uh, for the film itself. And right now we're working on writing the full length version of that because that's something oh. that we really want to, because it was a short, it's a short, so it's uh, 27 minutes, I believe. Um, and like that will be available for streaming really soon. Like we've been working on a deal for that. I can't tell you where yet, but uh, so that is really exciting. So I just wanna like continue exploring all my artistic interests and uh, writing and acting and fashion. And I don't know, like I just like doing a lot of stuff. <laughs> I'm a layered person, I don't know. Like I can't just, yeah. Being a wrestler is like at the core who I am but also being an entertainer um more than anything is, is who I am so you'll see we'll see makes sense so keep checking the social media and when the time's right the news will come out that's what exactly. we've learned about you at this point yes when it's appropriate <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for your time and looking forward to whatever is coming next and thank you to the NWA for making this one happen absolutely and we'll see everybody in Knoxville hey Jake can you hear me okay I, cer I certainly can. Hey, Jake, thank you for taking the time. How's your day going aside from having to do press? Oh, well, it's going great. Thanks. Well, we were connected to talk about Fallen Hire, which you narrate and you're seen being interviewed for. When did they actually finish the film? Oh, I honestly, I, I couldn't tell you when they finished the film. I don't know. Um, 
I, I, I suppose recently. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, I get that sometimes you film something and then three years later it comes out and you go, oh, okay, I forgot about that project. It sounds like those kinds of vibes for this one. Well, yeah. I mean, when you do any project like that, it, it uh, I mean, you can go back to the time of inception mm -hmm. of a project and you, you're looking at, and you can you can be looking at a decade depending on what the project is so uh most of the time from my end of things if i work on something um before digital it was it was always one year it was almost one year to the day um but now with digital you don't have film processing times and so that's it cuts the time frame by months so I, I I don't know. Do you know when they were done shooting that thing? I don't remember. No, wait. But you know, it, it's been some time. It's been. I mean, I, I think I did the interview about a year ago. Outrocast. Well, thank you for taking the time. Aside from doing press, days going okay? Yeah. Um, you know, there's always a lot going on. I have I have a teenager, so need I say more? Um, right. The having a teenager is a part of the red light, green light album because it's an introspective album. But is that the latest and the greatest thing to talk about, the red light, green light album? That is. It's still very new for me. And, uh, you know, it's exciting to play these songs live, too. That's part of why I, I decided to write the album. I just I was craving, you know, new material. And it's we just did an East Coast run and it was amazing. And it felt so good to play these songs. I heard that a choir was brought out at the New York show a week or so ago. Yeah, we had the Harlem Gospel Choir, uh, which was an incredible honor because, you know, I don't know, I'm just moved by that soul music. And uh, it was it was just a gift to have them on Search of My Soul. Um, and now I'm kind of spoiled, you know, <laughs> it's like whenever I sing that song, I'm going to want to hear the choir. So I'll hear it in my head. You have New York roots. I know that you also grew up in Los Angeles, but where in New York did you originally grow up? Well, I, if you can count uh, living there till I was a year and a half, I grew up in Manhattan. I was born in Manhattan. So, and and my my father actually was a theater critic in New York. So I, I have a lot of New York roots and uh, he lived there later, you know, and I would go back a couple times a year and go see all the Broadway shows and he'd get us house seats. So, you know, it was great. Definitely a good perk. Well, hey, back to that new album made at the height of the pandemic with your husband, who's a fantastic producer. I first learned about him from the Soul Coughing album that's named after Ruby. And then after that, you realize, wow, this guy works with the best people, yourself included. Did you know outright, hey, I want my husband to work on this album? Uh, absolutely. Um, and it was kind of the other way around because I was actually a, a fan of his before I ever met him. And um, sorry, I'm going to switch glasses. I can't get the right distance but that's good um so, so when I was doing my second album I was working um with Don was and he said hey how about Mitchell Froome on B3 and I said what can we get him you know I was a huge fan of Mitchell's so uh so I said yes and I, that's when I met him so it was around 1990 uh we both were in other relationships so he has been my favorite producer for you know this whole time and so the answer to your question is yes. I definitely, you know, it was the given that he was going to do the album. This is our eighth album together. It is seven years since your last full-length album before you got this one out. In your case, was it a, hey, why do I need to make albums when I can tour and do singles? 
or was a writer's block or all the above? I wouldn't say it was writer's block, but I would say I, I, you know, I, I realized I was a little burnt out, you know, and writing is so hard. It's the hardest yet most, probably most gratifying thing I do. So mm -hmm. it just took a certain, you know, it took a certain kind of uh, decision and energy to commit to making a whole album. And, you know, talking to Mitchell, he would say, just, you know, get one song and then get two songs and then, you know, chip away. And that's, I knew that, but it's overwhelming to think I'm going to write an album. So I needed a little nudge there. You, so you didn't have a publishing company going, hey, you owe us the quota of the songs. This is entirely a, I got to do this. This is my creative release. Absolutely. And, and it's, it, you know, having new material infuses your whole life with energy, mm -hmm. with new energy. Even if I only play one or two songs live, the whole show feels different. You know, it feels like uh, it's got a new spark to it. And it kind of spreads throughout the set as well. So I'm really happy. It, yeah. So looking at your upcoming touring, they're touting, hey, the 25th anniversary of Valley McBeal. But of course, you have this new record. When somebody sees you live in, say, the Netherlands versus New York, is it the same set list? Or is it, hey, these songs were hits in this country? Because I know that your roots go back to the Dan Hill cover and your first, the Dan Hill duet and the first major label deal and all that. And for all I know, those were number one hits in the Netherlands. You know, that's a good question. Um, I feel like my crowd in um, in Europe and overseas is a little younger and they seem to have my solo albums as much as my Ali album. So like, it's good Eve. I've got hardcore European fans that want to hear a, a Lucky Life or a Grain of Sand or something. So mm -hmm. I feel comfortable over there. Yeah, so I feel comfortable over there kind of doing whatever I want. And that being said, I do have some hardcore Alley fans all over the world. Um, the album was number one in a lot of countries. And, and it would be kind of lame of me to not play some of those tunes. Um, Search in My Soul, I wrote, you know, so I feel good playing that. Right. Tell Him, Tell Him is, a, is a hit that was on, on the album that was uh, really, it's actually fun to do live. And by the end of the show, after I do some of my, you know, my stuff that I like to do, at the end of the show, I get up with my guitar player and dance around. And, and it's actually, I blow off a lot of steam. The audience goes, crazy and it's it's fun got it but it was the same hits more or less all over the world for your career I, th this is a fascinating thing to me because for example when i spoke with the singer of the band the church the mm -hmm. other day he's saying under the milky way was only a u.s hit it wasn't a hit in australia or the uk so i didn't know if searching my soul was number one everywhere the dan hill hit was everywhere etc you know, I you're making me realize I should I should have asked that question and and dug into that to to do my research before I hit a country, but I I didn't. Um, the one thing I do know is "Searching My Soul" was number one or two. You know, in many many countries, I have a lot of those platinum album plaques from like <laughs> Taiwan and you know the Philippines and and Spain. And I mean, it was number one in Spain for four weeks uh, on the the album chart. And so, yeah, so I always do Search of My Soul. Maryland is one of my most known songs that I wrote, and it's on a couple of albums. So, so it's on an Alley album, but it's also on It's Good Eve. So that one's in. That's in, and I like it. <laughs> Where do the plaques go? Some artists just have them in a storage unit, and others have the plaque room in their house, like their office Zoom call room. I know. I can't do that. I have them in my tool shed. <laughs> 
are, are Mitch's, uh, are Mitch's um, plaques there as well? Yes, we have, um, I'm not bragging, but we have a, quite a large stack and they're covered with like packing blankets. And you know what we should do? I was thinking is, is auction them off for charity. And we should do that because someone might want them before they disintegrate, <laughs> you know? Yeah, the spray painted Frank Sinatra records with the gold paint. But <laughs> did you ever hear that rumor that all that's what all the platinum and gold records are? They're spray painted Sinatra records that were in excess? I did not know that. That's great. I don't know if that's true, but uh, I don't want to be sued by libel. So uh, for libel, so allegedly they're Frank Sinatra record. Yeah. Uh, so, so back to you. Having finished this album, did that spark creativity in that you go, "Hey, I want to do another one," or is it still one album at a time? Well, you know, I I write in a journal, um, you know, as often as I can on a daily basis, and I was writing to myself it would be very wise to continue the creative process because now I'm on, you know, I'm on the train, we're going, we're chugging along. So, and, and I actually did come up with a couple of ideas and I have them on my phone and, and it's, it's really, uh, it's like a window, almost like a spiritual creative window that closes if you don't well, closes now, let's do a sliding side window. Um, it, it really can shut down and, I like as we're talking, I'm thinking as soon as we get off the phone, I'm going to go listen to some of those ideas and maybe try to dig in and work on them a little bit. So thanks. <laughs> when you are writing, do you do fully produced demos or is it just piano and vocal? Um, I do my own piano vocal, very simple. But Mitchell and I, when we work together, he he helps me, you know, he'll come up with some bass parts, he'll get a groove, and then we'll end up recutting most of it. Um, on Red Light, Green Light, the actual song, he came up with a cool drum groove. And I think that's just his programmed drum. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I might be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure. Um, but he he really d does a lot of arrangements in advance. And we sit together in this room. This is our, this is my pub. I know it's, see, that's the piano right there. Yeah. It's just, it's a good writing room because it's got reverb and, you know, feels good in here. It's like a funky club. So, um, yeah, so... So he he and I sit here, he sits in the chair right there and like nods his head while I play the song. And he comes up with the cool ideas, just so cool. And it's really fun working with him. So piano next to you, how often do you tune it? That is a real, real question because I hear people who, if they're on the road, they tune it every day. And other people go, nah, I like it with the funk element of it being a little out of tune. Mm hmm mm hmm It's that expression, the dirt keeps the funk. The dirt goes. keeps the funk. James Jamerson Jr. or Sr. from the Funk Brothers. Um, yep. Yeah, the dirt keeps the funk. So we tune this piano about every six months, which is <laughs> really bad. Um, but when, when it starts really bugging me, because Mitchell and I both don't mind a little, a little attitude, you know, edge, you know, wavering. Uh, the piano in the studio, uh, we tune every time there's a project and Mitchell's, you know, out there today working. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. Back to you here. Two last questions, then I'm going to let you roam free. Uh, the first one is, as I mentioned before, you look at the website of Ms. Vonda Shepard and you see, hey, she is touring your big time in the coming months. This is a new record. Are you looking at 2024 already or are you a one year at a time kind of artist? We are actually looking at 2024. In fact, um, recently, a couple of days ago, I was on the East Coast playing for a thing called APAP, which is the Performing 
Enterprise Center's buyers. So I did a couple of showcases for them, like, hey, this is me, this is what I do. And uh, from that, we're hoping to get 2024 booked for some performing arts centers all around the country. Because a lot of my fans say, you know, why do you always go to Europe? Why don't you ever come here? What's wrong with us? And I'm like, it's not you. <laughs> right. The Performance Art Center, the PAC kind of venue is, is a hard world to get into. But then once you're into that, then, you know, the city wineries of the world want you. And so fingers crossed for APAP paying off. And my last question, which is a dumb one, is <laughs> when most people think of you in music. They think of more soul, R&B, 60s pop influences. But did you ever have a metal or a hard rock phase? I listened to some hard rock. Like I, I was a huge Soundgarden fan you know, at the gym, just blasting it and lifting weights. And, you know, so I, I like it. Uh, it's not what I do personally, you know, just so you know. And before you go, I have to mention this because um, we, we manufactured vinyl, but it's back ordered like four months. So eventually on my website, I will have vinyl of red light, green light. And I have CDs on my website that people can just buy, you know, and my my friend over here will mail them out. <laughs> it's really cool. Physical goods. They keep they always keep 10 to 15 percent of the diehards happy yes yes it doesn't <laughs> right okay <laughs> and there's enough diehards out there well either way i look forward to your next new york gig and keep up all the greatness thank you so much thanks for having thanks. me michael really thank you for taking the time grew up watching your shows in the 80s and the 90s and then there's quiz show which earned an academy award nomination or two so fantastic credits that you've got and maybe I do is the new movie. Did you know outright that you wanted to direct it in addition to writing it? No, I didn't want to direct it at all. I was um, very surprised when Chris Slager, who was at Endeavor Content, which is now fifth season at the time, said, no, we want you to direct this. You know, I had faith in the company when they read the script and mm -hmm. wanted to go ahead with it. And then when they said they wanted me to direct it, I lost all faith in the company. <laughs> <laughs> well, going through your credits, you did direct some of your television projects, a couple episodes here and there, but it's not directing kind of oriented in your career. What was the first thing you directed? Was it an episode of My Two Dads? It, that's very good. Yeah, it, it was, in fact, an episode of My Two Dads. I did dinosaurs a bit. You know, what? what's interesting is that I was concerned Um Mike, the other producer on this, one of the other producers, Vincent Newman, said to me, I'm sending you directing for dummies. Do you, do you know what you're going to do at all? I said, no, I'll, I'll suss it out. The good news was it was similar, the experience, to running a show. Because the decisions that you're making, what you're afraid of, I think, of a first-time director are... Mm -hmm. Am I going to have the right camera shots? Am I going to have the right movement? Is, is you know, my performance notes to these lions in the industry is will be ridiculous. But what actually happened was we got Tim Serstedt, who was the DP for, oh, my God, uh, the wedding singer. And, and there, if you look up, his, his credits are extraordinary. And um, that doesn't matter. He was a great guy. And when we did the shot list together, he said, listen, you know what you're doing, you know, go forth, my son. And so uh, Tim and I got along great. And then the thing that was the such a such a bonus was that 
you know, Diane and, and, and Bill and Richard and Susan, it couldn't have been a, a smoother process because not only did they understand the characters and what they wanted to do, I think that, um, you know, I'm, it's funny, I'm reading reviews, some of them are good, some of them are just awful, but, but what's interesting about them is that they all think that the movie is a romantic comedy. When they, when they hit it, the ones that hit it, forget the ones that, you know, love the movie because I'm a person who's grown up, you know, no, no, the bad reviews are the ones that are correct. Hey, yo, check one, two. This is Flavor Flav, and I don't disappear fast because right now you are watching the Paltrow cast. Paltrow cast.